I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we look back at a reduced tillage practice that was developed even before the no-till movement got started. In this episode, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lasseter talks with Bud Fleischer of Columbus, Nebraska. Bud's dad, Leonard Fleischer, started his career as a pharmacist and later manufactured the first line of ridge tool equipment that was sold under the Buffalo brand name by Fleischer Manufacturing. Leonard's career grew from being a pharmacist to becoming involved with an exciting new prescription tillage system. Listen in as Bud and Frank reminisce about the early days of ridge till, how many of the benefits of ridge tilling ended up becoming key parts of today's strip till systems, and how Lester Media produced a monthly ridge till hotline newsletter in the early 1990s that served as a counterpart to our nearly five decades old no-till farmer publication. Tell me about the history of Fleischer Manufacturing in Columbus. How did your dad get involved? And did he grow up on a farm or not? <laughs> no, uh, my father actually did not grow up on the farm, but he bought farmland. And, and actually, uh, my father was born and raised in Grand Island and went to the University of Nebraska. Believe it or not, his father, William Fleischer, and his wife both believed in education. And they had uh, two boys, and of course, my father being the youngest, Went to University of Nebraska and got a degree in pharmacy, earned and scraped money, uh, and my dad worked in a drugstore, and that's I think that's why he became a pharmacist. And uh, when he'd walk to school in the morning, his job was to stop at the drug, local drugstore and uh, get the furnace started and stoke it so when uh, they opened, they could take and uh, the building was heated up and uh, and so forth, and he worked in the evenings there as well. But after he graduated, it was in the early 30s, he, um, from pharmacy school, uh, of course it was during the Depression, he uh, traveled, uh, he actually lived in Columbus for a while, and then from then he had a, he worked for the Upjohn Company, which is a pharmaceutical company, he traveled uh, mostly uh, northern Nebraska and South Dakota, and he bought uh, farmland around the winter South Dakota area, mm-hmm. and that's how he primarily got involved in agriculture. And, of course, during the 30s, of course, we had the dirty 30s, the Dust Bowl and all that. And he see a lot of uh, wind erosion. And, of course, when it did rain, it, it had water erosion as well. But that conservation uh, tillage never involved back until the late 50s. But as far as manufacturing goes, he was at a, f- a family dinner. And um, he had a cousin uh, on my wife's side that was involved in the farming and so forth and said, you know, these tractor seats are really not the best. Uh, they're not comfortable, and they're usually a steel pan seat. Right. I remember and, those as a kid. And they would throw a, a burlap sack over them or something like that just for some little right. insulation because they were cold. And they also were just usually on a piece of spring steel. <clears throat> so his cousin was more of the engineer at that time, and they just took an automotive shock absorber and reported it a little bit so it was a little uh, less firm, made brackets for various tractors. And when my father would go out on his route as a detail 
salesman for the Upjohn Company, and partner every town, uh, just about every town, you know, be a couple hundred people or or more had an implement dealer back in those right. days. And so he would show them the product, uh, what they had designed, and took orders, and he would call them in. And uh, his cousin would go out to a farm and find a tractor of that type and make a, make brackets. And that's how they got started in what was called at that time Fleischer Schmid Company up until sure. 57. And then they started making a complete uh, upholstered seat and a, a complete frame and so forth. So that's how the company got started. And then it wasn't until – and there's various products that they made over the time, you know, uh, weed sprayers of all kinds and a high boy sprayer and so forth. And my dad, uh, being from the University of Nebraska, graduated there. Uh, he followed a lot what the university was doing and so forth. And and they were fairly well-known company in the in the 50s for various products for insecticide and herbicide products. And the University of Nebraska came out and said that probably there would be no more insects and weeds because of tillage. I mean, everything would sure. be controlled by tillage, which was being done already. So there wouldn't be a need for uh, sprayers in the future and so forth. So he basically got out of the out of the sprayer business. Well, look at today what had happened to the <laughs> sprayer business. Right. So he, in some respects, he was way ahead of his time. And in some respects, he was behind the time because he got out of that product. So uh, when he got into conservation tillage, uh, that wasn't until late 50s. And going back to University of Nebraska, they were working on a system that was known at the time, and uh, it's called the Nebraska Tilt Plant System. And in southern Nebraska, particularly uh, more in southern Nebraska, parts of western Iowa and northern Kansas, there was a lot of listers being used at that time. Right. A lot of people probably don't know what listers were, but they were uh, a planter that was a fairly regularly, actually pretty rugged, ruggedly made at that time. And compared to other planters, most planters are fairly, you know, light and um, not very heavily built. And so the university made an attachment to go on these listers of a kind of a flat-looking blade. It was um, looked a lot like a cultivator sweep, but bigger and so forth. And the idea was to plant on ridges because a lot of uh, Nebraska at that time had uh, flood irrigation, or some was referred to it as furrow irrigation. So... Uh, it was kind of ideal because the seabed was already made the year before, mm-hmm. and so. But there's a lot of a lot of problems in trying to incorporate this system for conservation. And it was cultivators weren't designed to go through residue. That was one of them, particular uh, row spacing. Well, it wasn't much the row spacing. It was more the equipment uh, running over the rows. Uh, so you wanted to keep. Uh, grain carts, combine wheels, and so forth, off of the ridges. So it was a process of education to uh, educate, you know, the farmer on this practice. And then uh, uh, spreaders on combines, for example, and spread out the residue so it wasn't all between two rows or something like that. So it became a residue management and also then educating the farmers on maybe taking some of the sweeps off of their cultivator and staggering them or putting uh, disc coalers on them so to help go through the residue of the coalers uh, from the standpoint of cutting the residue to a certain extent and then making ridges again for the following year 
for your seedbed. So they didn't really look at it at that time of going out of those areas where there was primarily uh, flight irrigation. And that's how it basically got started. But my father, also having land in South Dakota, knew the benefits of uh, reducing uh, cost of a field. You know, every time you went over the field, you cut up your residue or buried it, so it exposed it more to wind erosion especially, and then also the water erosion effect. And then there was a lot of hidden benefits that came with it, which was probably not really seen in the, in the start with, and that was soil compaction. Because every time you run over the field, no matter what kind of a piece of equipment you have, you, you compact the soil. So it was a very uh, learning experience, not only for my father, but also educational experience to make the system work. And uh, it's kind of delicate, but if you don't follow really all of this, what's needed to be done, you probably won't like the system, or you're going to run into problems of not being able to either plant through the residue, cultivate through the residue, soil compaction, or all of the above. Right. It's, uh, it's just like if you skip one of the little things, it can make a big difference. <laughs> right, right. You got to be probably like flying a plane, you know, you you better put the landing gear down before you land. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting here because you think of conservation tillage and you think of no tillage getting to start. But when you look at this, ridge till came out before we hardly had anybody interested in no till or even considering it. Because with no till, I mean, you, you had you had to have the herbicides to kill the residue and to kill the weeds, but the ridge till system, well, you know, if it started in the 50s, it was around for 10, 15 years before no-till ever got started. Uh, and that's true. And uh, I, I think that the ridge till system, without a doubt, helped kickstart Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, no-till is a very well-known name today in the industry. And ridge till you basically not heard of a lot. I mean, it's still being used, but it's uh, uh, due to um, chemicals that come on the market. And like you mentioned, Frank, the chemicals came, which really helped drastically. Cultivator should have came before the planter, because my father developed the planter first to start out with attachments sure. on the listers. Then he came with a complete planter in about 63, then 64, uh, came with a high-residue cultivator. And that really changed the uh, industry when it came to cultivation because in a ridge seal system, you had to at least cultivate once to build a ridge to build that, that build your seedbed for the following year. More and more things developed in time, and uh, you mentioned, well, you mentioned herbicides, but herbicides played a, a big role in it. And uh, whether it was a complete band or a complete coverage of the field, because if you didn't control the weeds, you probably weren't going to get a crop or not a very good crop because right. of the weeds takeover. Right. And ridge-till and no-till, as you know, got really blamed for a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> right, sure did. And, and, you know, one thing was that way back, and I don't remember what years it was, it might have been in the early 70s, and it was after I was soon out of school, out of college, and uh, uh, there was the blight, and they, they blamed that on the no-till, ridge-till. Oh, southern corn blight, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah, and they, and they uh, a few years later, they said, well, it started in, I think it was South America or someplace, and it was airborne. Mm -hmm. It got into the atmosphere, and, of course, again, it goes back to uh, hybrids. Seed corn uh, companies uh, adapted their corn to be... Uh, 
I think they called it blight resistant. I don't remember the exact right. name, but they because uh, it would devastate. But they found out again later on that no tail ridge tail had nothing to do with the blight. Right, exactly. It was totally, totally different. I can remember uh, years ago, must have been in the 69, 70, and I was working for a magazine before No-Till Farmer in Chicago, and somebody had a seminar on this, and southern corn blight had shown up that year in Kentucky, and they said, aha, here's the hotbed of no-till. This is why this blight has shown up in this area. Right. Another thing, uh, going back, uh, just in the development, development of the system, um, my father couldn't get very few anyway. I say he couldn't get any, but there was very few uh, implement dealers that would take on the system. Sure. At least full line companies, because full line companies want to sell horsepower. They sell horsepower. They sell tillage, and tillage meant you know disc and plows and right. harrows and and so forth. Right. And they go into an implement dealer and say, now you might not need as big a tractor to pull this five-bottom plow or whatever kind of size plow you might have. Mm-hmm. And you don't need a disc, and you don't have to – well, maybe you need a disc, but you don't have to disc as often if, you, if you're going to go into no-till or whatever system. Right. There's a lot of difference of what I call conservation tillage. Cause to me, no-till is one system. That is where you don't do any tillage at all. But a lot of people refer to, refer to, uh, to no-till as a generic everything. But anyway, um, well, in an infant dealer, why would an infant dealer want to take and give up a good part of his income? Because if the tractor isn't working as hard, it's not going to come in as often for repair parts. Exactly. It's going to wear right. out as soon and, and so forth. And uh, even the balk man, when farmers started getting into ridge till, no till, selling the fuels and so forth, they're reducing, the, you know, not buying as much fuel. So. Right. So it was economics, and my dad always said economics went out. Well, some of the people who were selling all this product and so forth, uh, I mean, implement dealers, didn't want a thing to do with it. We had a, sometimes a few uh, dealers would buy the buy the product, tie up the dealership, and yeah, if somebody walked in and asked for it, they had it, but otherwise the implement dealer didn't really promote it. But started out with what they called short-line dealers and farmers. Uh, most most of our first dealers were all farmer dealers. And, and the good thing about the farmer dealers was they actually used the equipment, so they knew how to service it, and that's that's a big thing, getting the farmer started and uh, and putting on, uh, you might say, dog and pony shows uh, at a local auditorium or someplace to explain how the system works and the do's and the don'ts. Right. So let's walk through the uh, ridge till system for someone that's listening to this that is not really into it. You would uh, let's start with harvest and then what go through it until we seed and cultivate the next okay. year's crop. Yeah, like uh, harvesting in the fall of the year, basically. Yeah. Well, one of the things to do, hopefully, that you have before you harvest, you have ridges made from that season, and you want to protect those ridges. You know, you want to really protect them. When I use the word protection, is that don't run over the ridge. Don't run, you know, over the top of the the, the planet uh, crop, whether it be beans. So, of course, now nowadays a lot of people uh, drill beans and so forth, and uh, and you can still use what they call a, a, a maybe a no-till system on drilled right. beans because they don't ridge. 
They, they, so we we would be talking roll widths of thirty or thirty six inches in those early days, right? Probably. Right. Well, in the early days, it was basically a lot of it was believe it or not. You go back into the late fifties, there were forty inch rows, thirty eight inch rows, and, right? And they were downsizing rows. I mean, thirty eight to thirty six, and so forth. And the wider row spacings do help in residue management because normally in a ridge till system, I'm mean, going back to after you harvest. Uh, make sure the combine uh, distributes the residue out of the back of the combine, unless you're going to come back and you're going to pick it up and bale it. So that's that's very important. And I'll stress over and over again about residue management. And then in the spring of the year sometime, or even during the winter, you get the right type of day, unless you've got snow cover or something like that, you can go out and shred your stocks. But again, you got to be careful of shredding stocks. Uh, one year I went out, and here again, I uh, I married the farmer's daughter. That's how I got into <laughs> in the farming <laughs> But one year I went out and I shredded stocks and I uh, uh, I shredded four four rows, left four rows and did did that. Well, anyway, out here in Nebraska we do get wind and uh, like a lot of places do. But four rows that I shredded blew into the four rows that weren't shredded. <laughs> so then in the spring of the year I shredded, so I had four rows of a lot of residue. When it came to planting, I uh, planted in. Of course, you had to plant the whole field. I'd started running into plugging problems with the planter, even with the buffalo planter we had, uh, uh, plugging problems. And then even if you can plant through it, if you've got good ridges, and I'm going to emphasize you've got to need an need adequate ridge, but shred the stocks again. And when you shred the stocks, the ridge is more bare and warms up quicker. Mm-hmm. But then you got to come back and cultivate sometime. So you got that residue between the rows. So... Again, distribution and even distribution of that residue and doing a fairly good job of shredding stocks is important. So now we're going to get plant. Plant, of course, uh, some people would cultivate once just to build a ridge, particularly those in furrow irrigation. Sometimes those people back in the day now, starting the bath in the late 50s and the 60s and the 70s, would cultivate twice anyway. And again, a lot sure. of that was due. We didn't have the herbicides that we have today, and that was a way of... Uh, Weed control. How tall do you want that ridge? Well, six to eight inches. Now, the ridges okay. will settle out. So, right. usually you'll cultivate them a little higher than that, but they will settle down some. But any ridge is better than no ridge at all. And some mm-hmm. people think in ridge planting, you're, you, you end up with planting in a valley. You really don't want to for several reasons. One is you want your ridge or your seabed higher after planting. That helps for, um, again, residue management. That's part of it. Uh, and also, if you get heavy rains, and and then that way your uh, crop doesn't drown out as easy. So then in the spring after you've planted, you kind of come back and cultivate once or twice, right? Right. And a lot of times, and again, uh, later on, I get into the 80s and so forth. Uh, a lot of them were doing you know, more herbicides of various kinds, better herbicides for ridge till, no-till. Some would do a band spray, mm-hmm. try to control any weeds that come in the row, and then also the ridging up, which would uh, be your last cultivation, or maybe it was just one cultivation, but um, it was important. We always said that uh, if you had weeds before you plant, you need to control those weeds with a, some type of a spray. 2,4-D was one that was used an awful lot, because that's right. for broad, broadleaf. That, um, that was... a very important to if you have a weed growing out there and you and when you're plant you can about imagine how big that weed 
where grass is going to be later on after your corn has germinated. So, And a lot of it was controlled by cultivation and also herbicides of various kinds. There was atrazine and so forth, and you had to use the right. And when it comes to beans, there wasn't very many herbicides out there that you could use on beans. Right, right. That was... Uh, so um, tillage really controlled a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, weeds for, for weed control. So in the spring, after you've planted, and this plant is up a little bit, you're going to build that ridge right in the old ridge where the plant's growing. So you're going to throw some dirt up against the plant? Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the things I mentioned, hidden benefits before, is that uh, wheel traffic control. I mean, right. That was a big, big benefit. Um after a couple of years, you know the the ground, particularly in the where you get in, enough freezing and thawing, the ground mellows out. Uh, you get better infiltration of the water into the into the soil, and then you also have the uh, wind protection of the residues because of right. wind. Uh, the, right. All those were additional benefits. Well, one of the things you had going in the Great Plains in uh, South Dakota and with Nebraska. Leaving those stalks up high over the winter would trap more snow and moisture instead of letting it get away from you, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. And even even the ridges help too. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe help to a certain extent. But yeah, exactly. You take like the uh, corn stalk residue and so forth. Yeah, that that really helped and help keep it more evenly the snow evenly distributed over the over the fields. Now, it didn't do a perfect job, but it helped. It was uh, it was a benefit. Mm-hmm. And going back to benefits and economics, um, that's one thing I would go with my father to a lot of these ridge steel meetings he'd have across the across the country. And sometimes you'd have a handful, and sometimes you'd have a couple dozen. We did not attract a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, that's for sure. He would try to take and encourage the farmer to bring his wife to a program. Yeah. And because he would say, you know, you're going to save somewhere around maybe 50% on fuel. You're going to have less time in the field. You have more time to spend with your livestock. And you're going to have more money to spend, you know, if you need a new washer and dryer or, <laughs> right, right. or you know, clothes for the children and so forth. So my dad was really a, a, real, a great marketing and salesman. He really was. He wasn't afraid to go up against somebody who would speak against the system. Sure. I remember at times we'd be driving down across the country or we'd be going up to the farms in South Dakota, and he'd stop and see this guy out there plowing his field or doing this and this and that, and he would introduce himself, and he says, you know, I have a product that would help you reduce what you're doing out here. Mm-hmm. And I know most of the time these guys would look at him like, are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you kind of talked about the, the real benefits, poorly drained soils. You got you were growing on these ridges, so that helped get away from that problem. And the furrow irrigation, uh, less chemicals. One of the problems we even see today with no-till is a lot of guys continuous corn, and that gets so much residue. But you you had a number of ridge tillers who were in the continuous corn early and making it work. That that's true, and um, most of the time, unless you get into some of the more drier areas, or if you have an extremely you know dry dry year, or if you have a real dry dry year. Uh, of course, a lot of this uh, ground in the early days was uh, furrow irrigation, flood irrigation. Mm-hmm. Sure. So stocks were, and again, residue management was always a, a thing to, the, uh, to be concerned of. Uh, oxidation of the stocks and the breakdown of that usually comes in the first couple inches of the soil. Right. And um, 
that was another thing they found is a you know a, a timely cultivation. Of course, it's hard to time exactly when you want to cultivate because it's because of weather mainly. But with a little bit of uh, soil cover over the residue, and that's what the uh, planter would do with cover up the residue a little bit, and um, that helped break down the, the stocks. But oxidation of oxygen into the uh, well, the top inch or two or a couple inches of the soil really helped break down the residue. So a little bit of soil on top too helps. Uh, um, keep it from, from wind erosion as well mm-hmm. once you shred your stocks and after you plant, of course. Right. We'll get back to Frank and Bud Fleischer in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Bud Fleischer, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Some time ago, a, uh, uh, somebody called me and they asked, uh, when was the first time you ever saw Roundup being used? And the answer to that is we, in the uh, early 1970s, we were running some trips to Hawaii along with Farm Wife News Magazine, and we had no-till plots on the island of uh, Maui. And, uh, Attendees at the 1974 conference got their first look at uh, what was going to be Roundup herbicide because we had it out in the plots. And they uh, they showed how the glyphosate chemistry compared with other herbicide options for early season no-till weed control. What I remember from those discussions at the plots was the excitement among a number of no-tillers. They were convinced the new glyphosate compound would be cheaper than the Paraquat they were using as a contact herbicide. Well, when Roundup came out, it was much more expensive than Paraquat, so their excitement died off rather quickly. Now let's get back to the program as Frank and Bud discuss some of the challenges of Ridgetill. So the, the drawbacks, I mean, you talked about implement dealers not being excited about this, and to be honest with you, today with implement dealers, there's implement dealers that still wish no-till would go away because they'd like to sell 300 horsepower tractors or 400 horsepower. But uh, so we still got implement dealers today that aren't like that. But what were some of the drawbacks of uh, ridge till? I mean, one one was argued you had to make two cultivations. Number or maybe you should be cultivating when you should be making hay, etc. Yeah, well, that's true. Drawbacks would be. I would refer to it as management. Mm-hmm. And you really, again, going back, you really needed to take care of those ridges, make an adequate ridge, make sure the combine distributes that, make sure you got a spreader on it, a good spreader. A lot of these combines now have, I don't know what they call them, they have cutters or knives or something when they, right. uh, the residue goes choppers, through, right. choppers, goes through it, and it spreads it out good. That's important. Keeping, you know, these got to get these grain carts that are, I mean, they're huge, but uh, make sure the wheel spacing fits the rows, between the rows. Right. That can be a drawback. Uh, 
something you just if they run down the ridges and stuff like that when you want to go to shred the stocks the shredder a lot of time will not pick up the stocks on the road they're, they're you know pushed down or it might it might have been muddy when they've been out there or wetter mm-hmm. than when they really should but again the farmer needs to get the crop out and they're going to they got a crop out there and they get into a later season a wetter season but uh, again wheel traffic control is very very important and um and whether you got a shredder out there going through the field, no matter what implement's going out to the field uh, after you uh, build your ridges, take care of those ridges. And right. then do a, a, an adequate, a good job of shredding the stocks. Again, in certain parts of the country, there's more wind than other, but uh, I've seen where you shred stocks and it can, they can blow and they can drift. The stuff gets fluffy. And so that can be another disadvantage of the ridge till system. Because them stocks can drift out there, and then you get what I call kind of windrows of them. And if you plant through it or able to plant through it, or if you can't plant through it, then the planter plugs. And then, Or if you do get planted through it, then uh, you don't have adequate ridges and so forth, then your cultivator can plug. So having the right equipment to do the job is uh, something that's required as well. Because mm-hmm. you can't take a conventional cultivator and go out there, what I call conventional, like they used, used to use. Most of these cultivators nowadays are what I call heavy residue cultivators can cut through the residue and so forth. But there's limitations to any piece of equipment. Right. Well, I remember some ridge tillers and no-tillers telling me early on that uh, you'd chop the stalks and the wind or water would carry them all down to a low area in the field up against the neighbor's fence, and it was nothing but a mess. Yeah, and... And that and that does happen, or then it does happen, and it can happen. Let's put it right, that way. Right. And uh, that doesn't probably happen every year, but that can be a can be a problem. Right. You could even see that sometimes. Even conventional farming, they just get caught at a certain time where they're going out there and and disc, you know, a couple times. Or chisel plows used to be really really big. I, you don't uh, you don't at least in around here anyway um, see anybody chisel plowing. Uh, unless sometimes somebody will go out there around where they had fed cattle around a feed bunk or something where they hate cattle and maybe they go in there and they'll take a chisel and, and chisel that compacted area because cattle can really pack pack the soil. And that's another thing is you've got a lot of cattle out there. It's good to get the cattle off the ground and where it's, uh, after the frost comes out or get them off as the frost is coming out because they right. can really pack the soil. Well, it's interesting you mentioned cattle because now today in NOTO, we're talking about regenerative agriculture and the big use of cover crops. And people were saying, my gosh, you need to run some cattle on that land and graze this. And we got some people doing that and doing it with sheep and getting an extra income off that. But I think the key is you better rotate those acres fairly well so you don't get the compaction from the cattle you can benefit from the manure but uh, mm-hmm. there's a number of people saying no tours you should be going and what one of the things going on today they're talking about in some areas 60 inch rows for corn with cover crops well then you got all this cover crop growing in there and there's some benefit to running cattle or sheep in there but one of the big problems is most of those no-tillers took their fences out and another thing that you usually will find that cattle sometimes they'll have a, a path through the field with sure. the, go to water and then you also go to, you know, maybe some hay or something like that that the farmer's putting out there. But uh, for the most part, the cattle will walk between the rows. They don't walk on top of the ridges. So right. so those cattle must be 
pretty smart. They must have been to some of my dad's uh, lectures and said, you know, right. stay off those rows. Well, I I learned something today. I didn't know your dad had been a pharmacist, but I think he he used that because he came up with a prescription tillage system that really worked for a lot of people. Yeah. So you had a lot of people in the dryland area and uh, ridge tilling, and ridge till kind of helped a lot of these guys get away from the eco fallow system, didn't they? Or fallowing for a year? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How'd that? Why? Why? How'd that work? You know, I I think it was just something that that happened mm-hmm. um, I really don't have an answer for that but um, rotation is big uh, in our area and, not, and again we talked about uh, you know corn on corn and uh, there's users that just use corn on corn and uh, uh, been very very successful mm-hmm. And um, but we uh, not everybody does rotation but uh, a lot of people do a rotation around here uh, used to be more wheat raised and that's pretty well gone uh the summer oats very little oats nowadays beans uh used to be sorghum and uh soybeans uh kind of replaced all of those for the most part and when we do have alfalfa Mm -hmm. and um usually like an alfalfa they'll they'll spray with some type of chemical you know knock it down it used to be uh 2,4-D that was one of the biggest chemicals I used at the time and uh that would kill it and you go in there and plant it of course, then we you were planting in a in a valley basically because yeah, the ground was flat and uh, wheat stubble and get down in the southern Nebraska there's a lot of a lot of wheat and that's where my father came out with a uh, it's really no till mm-hmm. it was a, a planter that was moved in on uh, like basically thirty inch rows and then eventually down to about fifteen inch rows sixteen right. and seventeen inch rows and so forth but. Uh, they call it slot planting back then, but it was actually a form of of uh, no-till. And some places they use drills and stuff like that, and they still do. I mean, they're not do, but they a lot of it. <laughs> I remember in the early days of no-till, you saw a lot of people no-tilling with the buffalo slot planters. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So we started uh, No-Till Farmer in 1972, and we progressed. And then I was looking for something new to do. And in 1991, we decided we would start a newsletter called Ridge Till Hotline. And I remember you're the one that really helped us get this going because you let let me use the mailing list, which was 12,000, 13,000 names at the time. And what, normally when we use a mailing list like this, if we get a 2% or 3% return on paid subscriptions, we think we're doing great. But this list for you for Ridge Till Hotline was the, the most productive mailing list I've used in our history. We got over a 10% return, which is just astronomical, because people were looking and hungry for information on Ridge Till. And I remember we sent this out. One of my philosophies was, a good time to start a subscription renewal is right after harvest because farmers got more money at that time of the year than any other time. And even if they had a bad year, they're losing income. They've still got more income than they'll have at any other time. So we made this mailing around Thanksgiving time. And my idea was, and I picked a day like two days before Christmas, December 23rd, if I remember right. And that was the day we were going to decide whether we were going to do this or if it didn't work, I was going to send the money back to all these people. And it was just amazing because we had close to a thousand subscribers in less than a month and at a, like a remarkable 10 or 11 or 12% uh, 
fee. So the list that you had is what built Ridge Till Hotline for us in those days. Well, wonderful. I'm, I'm glad I was able to help you. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened is we did this from 1991 to 1996, and no-till was coming on strong, and we find we, we didn't lose any money doing Ridge Till Hotline, but I just didn't see how the acreage was going to continue to grow. It's kind of flattened out or leveled off, so we did discontinue it in 96. But I still remember those days, and those Ridge Tillers were hungry for information. One of the other things I remember is you, you people put on, I think it was called the National Ridge Till Conference each year for a while, didn't you? Right, yeah, we did that for... Probably four mm-hmm. or five years, yeah. and uh, we we drew f- uh, people from Australia, Mexico, and uh, later on uh, a few people from Europe, and even some of the um, Soviet bloc countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, after the Soviet Union broke up back in about ninety or ninety one, whenever that was. Right. But um, basically, I don't have to use the word starving for information, but there's exactly. information out right. there. And the neat thing about that uh, National Ridge Till Conference was. We farmers came in who were users of the equipment. There was people that came in, farmers and farm managers that came in, want to learn about the system. Nothing is better than a farmer talking to a farmer, particularly a farmer who's been using the system, talking about the do's and don'ts. Right. Just like a, kind of like what we we've been talking about. Here's the here's what you don't want to do, and this is what I did and it didn't work, or this is what I'm doing and it works, yeah. and so forth. Or I, I tried this, and it didn't work out the best the first year, but this is some of the benefits I found after I've been using the system, you know, yeah. better uh, water infiltration of the soil. I have some bottom land that's heavy, heavy, wet soil. I never thought the system would work on it, but the ridges are drier. I built these ridges, and I stayed off of them, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't want to go out like any other system and plant when it's too wet you got to go out and do it when the conditions are right to do. Right. And um, so even our uh, some of these shows, that um, seminars that were put on, they were small ones, uh, nothing big, but uh, farmers would come in and you get a farmer that would talk about his, his system and what he's been doing, how he got started, some of, the, some of the things he had to do to overcome his problems on his farm and so forth. Nothing beat... Farmer talking to farmer. Right. Well, it's like I say at the no-till conference, and we really stress the networking in the halls, which is what you're talking about. And I've heard people tell me about how they've gone out in the hall and talked to some total stranger, and they said to the guy, you know that idea that that speaker just talked about is really dumb and it'll never work. Mm-hmm. And the stranger he's talking to says, well, I've been doing exactly the same thing for seven years. Mm-hmm. And it wakes the guy up, and now he wants to hear about the other guy. Yeah. So you, I mean, the National Ridge Still Conference, you you drew a lot of people in the hundreds. It, it was it was a big event. Yeah, we had four hundred to five hundred people right. somewhere in that range. Something else that I believe that No Tail has helped, and also Ridge Still, is the organic people. Yes, absolutely. And uh, there, when you talk about organic, now we're talking about not using chemicals. Mm-hmm. And um, there's where cultivation comes in, and uh, it becomes even more critical because uh, you're totally relying on a mechanical, for the most part, of controlling uh, weed control. Right. 
and also you got insect populations and problems too that that can exist and could happen. Right. And again, that goes back into I think the crop rotation and so forth. And that's something I never totally ever did was anything organic. But uh, probably the closest I've come is band spraying and then uh, and then cultivation. And the cultivation right. is mainly to do to build a ridge to plant on. Well, you go back. 10 years or so at the National Road Tillage Conference, and we would have round tables. We still do, and you have a pick at one time, maybe here's 15 to go to. And we would run one on organic no-till, and maybe 15 people would go. Today, this year, we ran another one like that, and 150 people went to the one on organic no-till. And we've got, we had two uh, attendees, two brothers, or two cousins from Ohio at the no-till conference this year, and they are they are farming fifteen around fifteen hundred acres, if I remember right, and their goal was to go totally organic no-till this year. That's which amazing. Is kind of a shock to start that big, but then we've got some other real dedicated no-tillers who maybe have two thousand acres and they're going to try four hundred acres this year. You mentioned nineteen ninety-one, and I tried to go back and look at this, and I think nineteen ninety-one is the year. But I was at the National Ridge Till Conference that year in Omaha. And what I remember about that is one night during the banquet or something is the time that the U.S. invaded uh, Kuwait and got after Iraq the first time around. And I remember General Westmoreland, the attack, I think, took place while we were sitting at the Ridge Till Conference that night. Yeah, I, I really kind of <laughs> forgot about that, but that is exactly right. And yep. I was trying to pinpoint the year I looked it up, and I think it was 91, but I'm not positive. Yep, that, I'm pretty sure that was 91. Yeah. You go back you go back into the 90s, and one of the things that bothered a lot of the ridge tillers was there were a bunch of no-till educators which which were bad-mouthing ridge till. And it, it bothered them and uh, et cetera. But I've written about this a couple times because when we look at strip till today, my God, what we're doing in strip till, we were doing in ridge till. Mm-hmm. We were we were building the berms, we were controlling traffic, we were deep banding fertilizer, and we were banding not only deep banding but banding fertilizer and strip till. A lot of guys have gone to it just so they can do continuous corn. So ridge till was kind of the precursor to the success we've had of strip till. Yeah, that kind of helped build the equipment. Exactly, exactly, right. And uh, you mentioned mechanical weed control. We've got a number of no-tillers who are looking at this again. uh, We've got some herbicide-resistant weed problems, and uh, there's more interest in mechanical weed control than I've ever seen. Part of this is the organic thing, but we've also got other people wondering if they could skip one herbicide pass if they use mechanical weed control. So how many acres are you farming? Well, right now, uh, personally, uh, I've rented everything out, so I'm not physically farming anything anymore. I've had some health issues, and uh, that's kind of taken me out of the picture. Right. But um, otherwise, uh, I'm more of a manager. Uh, mm-hmm. My my father's deceased. He passed away here sure. over 20 years ago. And my uh, brother, he has the land in the South Dakota area. And then I have some land in uh, Platte County and then mm-hmm. also, well, in Nebraska, I should say. I'll say it that way. Because some of your listeners probably don't know where Platt County is. Anyway, um, probably close to 400 acres total mm-hmm. in in Nebraska that uh, I own and uh, 
manage and so forth, which is in today's standards, not very much. <laughs> so uh, are you uh, asking these tenants to do some type of conservation tillage? Oh, yeah. Uh, they, uh, they are still using uh, ridge till uh, farming, and these fellows who are farming the land already have been using the ridge till system. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and most of this is irrigated land, not all, and some of it is pivot. Might matter of fact, most of it is pivot ground. It's it's uh, sure. irrigated, but there's some that uh, is not pivot. I don't use any gated pipe anymore, and so forth. But uh, and do a, a, a rotation. And you mentioned like deep fertilizer placement and so forth. Uh, that was one of the things uh, as we went along in uh, developing equipment and making you know attachments and so forth. The equipment got bigger and. Uh, Fertilizer knives of various kinds, whether you're putting them, uh, anhydrous on, uh, right. which a lot of them don't use as much as they used to. It's mostly gone to liquid. They want zone placement of fertilizer and so forth. I remember back 10 years ago or so, I was talking to two brothers in uh, Minnesota who were uh, had ridge-tilled for years. And they, they had had off-farm jobs, and but they were still ridge-tilling. Then they got up in age, and they decided... Uh, uh, we got to rent this farm out, but they were pretty pretty adamant that the, whoever got it had to do conservation tillage. Now they weren't going to make him do ridge tillage, but they, so anyway, they talked about four or five people, and they finally settled on one guy that was go, he was going to diss, but he wasn't going to mow more plow. And one of the guys told me later we learned a lesson from that because as it turned out, the guy dissed four times. <laughs> so when we interviewed people from then on, we weren't against disking, but we were going to ask how many times you're going to disk. Sure. <laughs> you know, going back to when you started, uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, back to when you started, I think you said it was in 72. with the 72, no-till. right. Yeah, seven, uh, in the No-Till uh, magazine publication you put out and so forth. And that helped tremendously. Mm-hmm. Tremendously, because it it ex- expanded uh, just knowledge. You're right. Put put uh, more things out there in in the media. It really, really helped. And um, to the people that were prescribing to your publication, things you were putting out, and also meetings that you put on, like your right. no-till conference. You know, that's something to be that is something to be proud of. And uh, and I and Frank, I really thank you for uh, doing what you've done for agriculture. Wow. Because stop and think of what you've done, and people have gone into conservation tillage whenever they did get into it. Nowadays, you know, I think the other generations that have been born into it, right? Because their father and maybe even grandfather got, and got involved in it years ago. But it wouldn't be for those pioneers like yourself, my father. Uh, it never, I don't know when it would have happened, but uh, going back to what my dad always said, he says economics will always win out because I know I was I was more frustrated than he was doing the, I call dog and pony shows or being at a fair or uh, a place like that. And these guys would come up and look at the equipment. First of all, you had to explain to them what it was because it was strange looking. Some thought it was a right. potato planter. Some thought it was a p- potato digger. <laughs> yeah. And then he told them what, it, what the concept was. And they would just kind of walk away or step back maybe uh, 20, 30 feet and, and they're with their buddy and, and they'd be maybe shaking their head. Yeah. <laughs> they were just, they were, like just like a top, and their heads would be shaking. Like, right. no, that's never going to work. That won't work on my farm. 
Well, in 1972, when we started No Till Farmer, we didn't own it. It was another publishing company, and we bought it out in 1981. But I'd, I had worked in Chicago as an editor of uh, Beef, Beef Cattle and Hog magazine. And so I'd gone back to Michigan to see my dad, and I told him I was changing jobs. I was going to do this No Till Farmer. And he just thought I was totally nuts. He said, what are you giving up a good job for? you got you got a couple kids. You're taking a chance. And I said, oh, it's time to do something different. I believe in this. So I left him a couple brochures on Paraquat and a couple things. And then we we were back home three, four weeks later, and he asked me where he could get some Paraquat. So uh-huh. we ended up uh, no-tilling part of the farm. It was never 100%, but it was on, on that. So uh, the family sold off the, the Fleischer Corporation. When did that happen? Uh, that was in 99. So okay. it's been 21 hard to believe 21 years ago the company was sold sold to a, a chicago-based company and uh we when we had some help in the sale of that we went out and went to a professional what we thought and to find somebody to buy the company and kind of unfortunately they people that bought it were more just investors uh-huh. and uh, they sold off product and this and that and and at that time, the company was struggling. We were struggling financially. We were, right. I want to say, we were equipment rich, but uh, cash flow poor. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to do something. But a few years before that time, um, we acquired uh, some other companies. One was in the hay line of equipment. Uh, I actually bought that out of a company out of Winnipeg, Canada. And then a local company here was a uh, real old company. I say real old. It was probably a 60-year-old company that made uh, mixer wagons and uh, sure. roller mills and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It was known as Hinky Manufacturing. Oh, yeah, I remember Hinky. Right. A very well-known company. And then we also uh, started doing in the box scrapers and uh, making a rolling stock chopper and stuff like that. And, and uh, I stepped down as president in 94, which I wanted to pursue some other things. Uh, mm-hmm. Just uh, I felt I took the company as far as I could take it at that time and so forth. And I mentioned that to our board a few times earlier. But anyway, in a, probably about a year and a half after we sold the company, the the people were going into the receivership who mm-hmm. bought it. They took large salaries and, and just sold off product line and uh, – so it was resold again and uh, to a company out of Norfolk. They uh, struggled with it. And again, part of it was due to the uh, economic times. We was in a down market. Right. But um, I understand the cultivator sales, of, uh, they went way down. Of course, uh, Roundup Ready really dug into the cultivator sales. Yeah, yeah sure did. And uh, more and more uh, no-tail and uh, chemicals helped no-till by all means there's no question about it but every year in the last few years they they've been selling more and more cultivators but it's kind of like what you said is some of these weeds are becoming weed resistant or chemical resistant so that's um, probably one of the reasons for that and then also the organic farmers getting into it as well Um, we've been talking almost an hour. I mean, you did you did fantastic. This is really great. Uh, again, thank you for everything that you've done in, with the agriculture, and uh, you helped the movement. And well, um, and in the no-till, ridge-till, all the above. Yeah, I'm proud of what we've done. Well, thanks again, Frank. Okay, take care and have a great day. I really yeah. appreciate you doing this. Thank no you. No problem. Anytime. All right. Okay, Bye. take care. 
Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more episodes about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Sometime back, a reader asked me about uh, if no-till was ever used in any place except in uh, farm fields. And the uh, answer was uh, yes, and it brings up a story here in Wisconsin. They were building a new golf course, and they were trying to figure out how to seed the fairways. And this is a, uh, the ground beneath it was pretty uh, consisted, consisted of uh, gravel and rock that had been left behind by the glaciers. And they were designing the course that they wanted to truly fit the land. So the argument came up, well, if we disc these glacial dunes and ridges to avoid moving dirt, we're probably going to end up with rocks on the surface. So someone suggested that they spray their fairway areas with Roundup to control the existing vegetation, and then no-till fescue grass seed directly into the dead plant matter, which is what they did. The uh, golf course architects said he'd been involved with 1,400 golf course projects across the U.S. and he'd never seen this done before. Well, it paid off. The golfers can now play all the little bumps and rumps that are there in the fairways because it's truly natural. And it's a course that's really been great. It uh, also serves as the site of the prestigious U.S. Open in June of 1917. So there's more value to no-till than just in farm fields. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Bud Fleischer for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Notill Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.